those, uh, as I said, I couldn't really uh, realistically read the, the whole of the 133 verses in Luke chapter 1 and 2, but hopefully that gives you a bit of a flavor um, of what those um, chapters um, are about. And, and what those chapters show us, and indeed what the song showed us that we sang earlier, was this Jewish longing for God, for God to be in their midst, for God to come. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And what we find in Luke chapters 1 and 2 is that this uh, wish, this desire, this dream, we might say, is finally being fulfilled. So what I'd like to do uh, this evening uh, uh, for our uh, study, look at what it meant uh, for those Old Testament uh, believers to be waiting for God, waiting for God to come in fulfillment of all those uh, promises. And as we explore this, I want to split it into, into two parts. So for the first part then, uh, let's talk uh, about uh, how the Jewish people have been waiting for the Messiah to come and to save them. Now when the Messiah did uh, finally come, of course, uh, many of the Jews, uh, it seems, were expecting a political leader to free them from Roman oppression. Jesus, of course, did not fulfill those expectations. Uh, they rejected him. Uh, they turned him over to the, to the Romans to be crucified. Uh, those are the stories that we've um, grown up with uh, in Sunday school. Uh, but uh, very uh, often you'll find some uh, modern uh, contemporary Jews uh, or scholars of Judaism who say, actually, the Messiah is not promised in the Old Testament at all. This is a Christian idea, not a, not a Jewish idea. Uh, they almost kind of suggest that uh, it, was, it was made up by early Christians to uh, a kind of propaganda plot to justify the ministry of Jesus. And you can read serious Jewish scholars today who, who take that view. Um, so uh, let's uh, look then at the Old Testament, a kind of whistle-stop tour um, of the Old Testament to, to see what the Bible actually says um, about this promised one. Well, the, the English word Messiah uh, comes from a Hebrew word meaning anointed one. Uh, in Greek, uh, that word is translated Christos, uh, which in turn became Christ in English. So every time we say Christ, uh, we're saying exactly the same as Messiah. Um, now, to fully understand what Old Testament believers viewed this coming of the Messiah, we need to try and understand what it was like to live in Old Testament times. Now, that's going to be really hard for us, I think, because what we're going to need to do is just for a moment, I would never normally recommend this, okay, but just for this part of the message, what we need to do is to forget everything that you know about the second coming, everything that you know about Pentecost, Everything you know about Calvary and everything you know about Bethlehem, all right? Just for these five minutes or so, you need to forget all of that, okay? Because those Old Testament believers didn't know any of that, at least not in the way that we do. So if we're going to understand what they were searching for and what they were looking for uh, and, and how they felt about that, we need to kind of put ourselves in their shoes, by kind of imagining what it would have been like before Jesus came at Bethlehem. So, um, when we think of uh, God redeeming his people, our thoughts naturally go to the cross. But for this exercise, for this part of the study, uh, when we think of God redeeming his people, your minds need to go to the Exodus, where God first 
redeemed his people, not to the Gospels. If you want to think about the center of theology, of biblical theology, don't think about Romans. Think about Deuteronomy. So that's the mindset that we need to be in if we're going to kind of understand really what the Jews were, were searching for and looking for and what their expectation was. Now, having said all of that, by the time that the Lord had given the law in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, Old Testament believers could have a pretty good understanding of the gospel message. It's not that they were entirely ignorant, of course. They knew that God had made them, just as we do. Uh, they knew that God had given them many commandments. And the principle among those commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. They knew that, what God required of them. And above all, and probably better than any of us, and better than most modern Christians, I would think, they knew that God was holy. They knew that sin was very serious. And all around them was the evidence that the wages of sin is death. As day after day, animals slaughtered at the tabernacle or the temple. They had this, not just a visual reminder, but a visceral reminder that the wages of sin is death. They knew that. And if they were honest with themselves, every Old Testament believer also knew that there was no way that they could keep the law. Every single believer in every single generation knew that sacrifices had to be brought in to atone for his sin. Now the Pharisees of Jesus' day, of course, may well have been very self-righteous. But we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that the Pharisees thought that they were perfect. No Pharisee believed that. And we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that all Jews were like the Pharisees. They weren't. Uh, you'd probably get a bit cross if uh, people today assumed that all Christians were like Church of England. You'd probably get cross about that. And an ordinary Jew might well get cross if we assumed that all Jews were like the Pharisees. They, they weren't. So, so Old Testament believers faithfully tried to follow the Lord's commands. And, and they knew that principle, uh, principally in those commands, they needed to love God. So they confessed their sin. They brought their offerings to the tabernacle and to the temple. They had faith that God would forgive them of their sin. Now they knew less than we do about how God was able to forgive, but they were saved in exactly the same way that we, were, we are saved, through faith in God, that God will forgive them in the way that he has promised, whatever that ends up being. So if all of that is true, and it is, and these believers were saved as they brought their sacrifices to the temple and to the, to the tabernacle in faith, why did they need and expect a Messiah? Well, the answer to that question is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10 and verse 11. You don't need to turn to it. I'll, I'll read it to you. But it's a, it's a really important verse. Really important verse. Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 11. It says this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Super clear. Old Testament sacrifices did not, could not, did not take away sin. What they did was act as signs, pointers, shadows 
of what was to come. They were vital, but in themselves, they were ineffective because they were never designed to take away sin. That's why David can say in Psalm 51, for you, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, I'm sure that uh, in the Jewish world, there would have been people, some of them not true believers, who kind of turned up with their sacrifice, hoping that would be enough to please God. Didn't have the zeal, they didn't have the faith, they just had their sacrifice. Just as maybe today there are many who take mass without really believing much of what goes on, without seeking to live for God sometimes, but they hope that their attendance at that service and their taking of that mass will be enough to please God even without faith. And just as there are people like that today, so there would have been people like that in the Old Testament days as well. So that's why Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 8 says the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Uh, you, you see, despite the centrality of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, true faithful Israelites believed that that system uh, was uh, uh, brought about by God it was something that they, that they needed to be part of. But at the same time, they knew that on its own it wasn't sufficient. And it's not a contradiction to say this was brought about by God and that faithful Israelites uh, carried it out. And at the same time to say it's not sufficient, that's not a contradiction. Because what we're saying here is that those Old Testament believers didn't trust in the sacrificial system. They trusted in the God who created that system. They didn't believe that their sacrifice took away sins. They believed that God took away sins and that he called them to bring sacrifices to demonstrate their trust that he would take away those sins. So those Old Testament believers, therefore, knew God's wonderful grace. They saw it in the way that those sacrifices were accepted by God. Uh, they saw it as they believed and trusted that they were forgiven in those ceremonies. But, but even then, we have to say that the desire for forgiveness was not the end for those Old Testament believers. Because inside the heart of every Old Testament believer burned a desire for something much more than merely the forgiveness of sins. Wonderful though forgiveness of sins is, Old Testament believers yearned for something more than that. You see, those Old Testament believers knew about Genesis chapters 1 and 2. They knew what life without sin was like. They knew that if sin was really dealt with, there would be no more death. They didn't, you see, just want forgiveness, but they also wanted an end of death. Just as there had been no death originally in the Garden of Eden. And yet every day at the tabernacle or the temple was this brutal ongoing testimony that death has entered the world through sin. They wanted an end to that. And, and more even than that, they, they didn't just want an end to death, but they also knew that in the sinless Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2 again, 
God walked with men. And they knew that God could not walk with them. They knew that when sin came into the world, Adam and Eve had been ejected out of the garden. That a barrier had been put in place. Angelic beings guard in the entrance of the garden with sword, with swords. And they saw a picture of that every day at the tabernacle in the temple. Where the curtain separated uh, the priests from uh, the place where God was said to dwell. And nobody walked with God in the way that Adam and Eve walked with God in Genesis 1 and 2. And those temple rituals and all the barriers uh, that were in place, in particular the holy place and the holy of holies being roped off to almost every Israelite, all of that demonstrated that despite God's grace to them, despite the forgiveness that they believed that they were receiving, things were not as they should be. Yes, they knew sins forgiven. They trusted God for that. But death was still present. And God was still, well, not entirely absent, but not close in the way that he had once been. So every true believer yearned for the day when there would be no more sacrifices, in other words, no more death, and they yearned for the day when they could walk with their God. That's what they longed for and yearned for. Now, we've talked already about the, the, the book of Hebrews and, and how clear that makes all of these things. The Old Testament believers, of course, didn't have the benefit of that book yet. But they did have the Old Testament, their own Bible. And those scriptures showed them not just what God had already done, but those scriptures gradually unfolded, we call that progressive revelation sometimes, to show them also what God was going to do. Uh, the, the scriptures showed them the, the covenants or the, the promises of God. And as the generations rolled on, God revealed more and more of his will and purposes. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis chapter 6, God made a covenant with Noah to destroy the wicked and to save the righteous. Wonderful covenant, if you're Noah. But despite the momentous way in which that promise was kept, a great flood, a, a, a cleansing, if you like, of the world, the whole earth has cleansed. And yet within a few generations, things were back right where they were. The story of Noah ends not in triumph, but in the righteous man being drunk and naked in his tent. Well, the book of Exodus then. It shows another covenant given to Moses uh, we sometimes call it the Ten Commandments, the covenant of the law. And yet at the very moment that Moses is on Sinai receiving the tablets of stone, the Israelite people are prostituting themselves to idols under the leadership of the high priest. It's not a good start to the covenant, is it? Uh, there's another covenant in 2 Samuel 7 where, where God promises that David's descendants will reign forever. And, and a temple will, will soon be built where, where God will, will live with his people. But within a generation, David's son has almost split the kingdom. This one who was to rule forever, 
within two generations, the split is complete and half the nation can't access the temple where God is said to dwell any longer. And they're worshipping in the high places other gods. So, so what does all that teach us and what does all that teach the Israelites who lived through it? Well, it showed them and us that God can destroy 99.99% of wicked men and yet wickedness continues just as before. It shows us that God can give clear teaching of what obedience looks like through the law. Yet wickedness continues just as before. It shows us that God in David can give a nation the greatest warrior, the wisest king in Solomon, grandest temple. And yet wickedness continues just as it did before. So, so in other words, those early covenants, grand as they are, show us that God's people will never be able to receive God's blessings on their own. And Old Testament believers knew that. Now that might all sound rather depressing. Uh, but interwoven within that great narrative which I've painted for you were many little tiny seed-like promises as well. The woman's offspring that would crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3. The prophet to come that will be like Moses who knew God face to face, Exodus 18. A promised one who would be both a Lord and a son, Psalm 110. One whose body would never see decay, Psalm 16. One who would be a priest forever, Psalm 110 again. Now what did all that mean? Well, I would imagine that as I'm describing that to you, you know what it means. Because looking back is much easier than looking forward. But what did it mean to them? Well, they didn't fully understand and they didn't fully know. They were excited by the prospect, whatever that might be. They were looking forward to it, definitely. But exactly what it would be, they didn't know. Now, of course, as God revealed more and more, things became clearer. In particular, the prophets reminded the people of God's covenant faithfulness, the, the obligations of obedience. But the people's repeated failure and God's continued promises, failure, promise reaffirmed, failure, promise reaffirmed, failure, promise enhanced, failure, promise enhanced yet more. That made it even more certain that God is going to send someone special to redeem his people. And the high points of the Old Testament revelation are perhaps Isaiah 53 and Jeremiah 31. Isaiah 53 tells us, among much else, that one will come whose life will be a guilt offering. That's verse 10 of Isaiah 53. He will bear the sin of many. We're getting pretty clear now, aren't we? Jeremiah 31 promises a new covenant that will succeed even when the old covenants have failed. It will not be like the covenant I made with your fathers, Jeremiah. But as these Old Testament believers drank in these promises as they were waiting for God, these passages 
evoked more questions than answers. What's this sent one going to be like? Is he going to be a triumphant Davidic king? Like 1 Samuel 7 talked about? Or is he going to be a suffering servant? Like Isaiah 53 said. Is he going to be a priest? Like Psalm 110? Or is he going to be a prophet? Like Exodus 18? What's it to be? And I think we can relate a little bit to that confusion, can't we? If I was to ask you the kind of equivalent modern questions about the second coming of Jesus, uh, is Jesus going to return before a thousand years, the millennium, or or after a thousand years? Uh, Will his coming be characterized by blessing or by persecution? And we struggle with the answers to that question because we kind of see a both and in the scriptures sometimes. And in many ways, those ancient Israelites were were as confused about the Messiah's first coming as we are by his second. We're sure he's coming. We trust God in his coming. But the details? Not always quite so sure. But they knew enough. That's the point. Enough to know that all their hope was bound up in what God would do through this coming one. Enough to know that their faith must rest in him. Enough, in other words, to be saved his as yet unuttered name. So, this is the Old Testament believers waiting for the Messiah. This is their hope. This is their expectation. This is their dream. This is their longing. But I said I was going to split tonight's message into two parts. And and there's a second part, which is just as important, that we neglect even more than the first. And we neglect that a little bit sometimes. There's a second time that God's people waited for God to come. Now, you might be thinking that I'm talking about the second coming of Jesus, that one day he's going to return from heaven to earth, Yes, one day Jesus is going to return from heaven to earth, but I'm not talking about that. That's the third time that people waited for God, not the second. There's another time when God's people had to wait for his coming. And it's important that we don't forget this one either. I read earlier from Luke's Gospel, from chapters 1 and 2, and I talked about a theme being present there. And maybe as we've been talking, you've been thinking, oh, I can see now what that theme was. Uh, this is about these, uh, these believers, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and Hannah and Simeon, waiting and longing for, for God to come and the, the redemption of Israel. And they, and they found that in Jesus, who was spoken about in all those passages that we read. And you're right. But I chose all those passages for a second reason, too. Because each of those passages did not just contain a reference to the coming Messiah, to Jesus. But they also, each one of them, contained a reference to another coming one. You see, the Hebrew Bible didn't just promise a Messiah. The Hebrew Bible also promised the Spirit of God. And believers were waiting for him too. And we read about him in Luke chapters 1 and 2. 
in all of those little sections. Now, w- when I say that the Hebrew, uh, that, that the Old Testament believers were, were waiting for the Spirit, I, I don't want to give the impression that the Spirit did nothing at all before the day of Pentecost or before the New Testament. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. So just to, to get things clear in our minds, I, I want to begin by explaining what the Spirit of God was doing in the Old Testament, at least briefly. So at creation, we find the Spirit of God hovering above the waters. During the exodus from Egypt, during the time of the first kings, most notably during the ministry of the prophets, the Holy Spirit is active. But despite the wide ministry of the Holy Spirit during all of that period... What the Old Testament believers saw and knew of the Spirit's work was just a tiny, small deposit of what was to come. Uh, I'll give you an example from uh, Numbers chapter uh, 11. Uh, So uh, God here is speaking, and he says this, I will take some of the Spirit that is on you, Moses, and I will put it on them, the elders. And that's what God did. But, that was Numbers chapter 11 and verse 17, eight verses later, verse 25, what happened when the Spirit came on the elders? This is what happened. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not do so again. Uh, The narrator goes on to tell us that there were two elders, Eldad and Medad, who were not with the others at the time. But the Spirit also rested on them. And they prophesied in the camp. Now, now Joshua was concerned about this. Hang on, that, that shouldn't be happening. Uh, but, but Moses says, don't be concerned. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. You see, at the time, in Numbers chapter um, 11, this was something that was, uh, that was only on a few, the, the spirit's presence. Uh, And this little vignette illustrates perfectly the nature of the Holy Spirit's presence in the Old Testament. Uh, This spirit coming on the elders is exceptional. It's not unique. It it does happen from time to time, but it is exceptional. It doesn't happen very often, and it doesn't happen to very many. Uh, The Holy Spirit, as best as we can judge, reading our whole of the Old Testament, came on in this way, on little more than a few hundred men in the thousands of years that encompasses the Old Testament, in the way that we're talking about here. So it's exceptional when it happens, but it's also transitory. The Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit goes. And when he goes, they did not prophesy again. And yet at the same time, embedded within that story is this hope that Moses expresses that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit in them. Now, as we go through the Old Testament, the historical books continue these exact same things. We read of the Spirit of the Lord coming on leaders of God's people, again, a limited bunch. People like Othniel in Judges 3 and Gideon in Judges 6 and Jephthah in Judges 11. But each time the Spirit came, he came on one man who immediately went on to to do some mighty act requiring power or wisdom or maybe to speak a prophetic word. The Spirit came. The person performed some remarkable act. And then it seems the Spirit left again. 
Occasionally, the Spirit would come on the same individual more than once. Samson, we're told, had that experience on three occasions. So did Saul. But these are, these are giants of the Old Testament. Experiencing the Holy Spirit in power just on three occasions makes them so. Now, in the Psalms, we see a little glimpse here and there of the, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we find in Psalm 51, we've quoted from that already, that the, the Spirit is synonymous with God's presence. Cast me not away from your presence, David says, and take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Uh, we find in Psalm 104 that the Spirit's work involves a recreation. Uh, we find in Psalm 143 that the Spirit's work uh, involves guidance somehow. So we're getting little glimpses here into the work of the Holy Spirit, but they're, they're just tiny glimpses. And it's not until we get to the major prophets that we start to discover that the Spirit has more in store for God's people than they've seen so far. Because in the major prophets, the, the Spirit begins to be spoken of in the future tense. And, and talk of the future Spirit is different to talk of the present Spirit in the Old Testament. It's different. Uh, so Isaiah, for example, speaks of the Spirit resting on Messiah. Uh, God confirms Isaiah 42, I will put my Spirit on him. Uh, later on he goes in, in chapter 59, My Spirit who is on you and the words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth. That's quite different from what happened to the elders in Numbers 11. Uh, the Spirit now is also beginning to be linked to the, to the end of judgment, and the, the beginning of blessing. Isaiah prophesies of this judgment that's going to continue until the Spirit is poured out on us from on high. Now notice the language. The Spirit poured upon us. It's a far cry with what's gone before. We, we couldn't have claimed an, an outpouring of the, of the Spirit on, on us. Just little drops, if I can put it like that, on individuals. You see, in those Old Testament books, the Spirit came and went from a handful of Israel's leaders. But in these prophetic books, the Spirit will rest on the Messiah. He'll be, he'll be poured out on God's Spirit. And by the time we get to Ezekiel, uh, we discover uh, that under the new covenant that's still to come, God's people will have a new Spirit. And by chapter 36 and verse 27, we'll find that the new Spirit is actually God's Spirit, who will bring holiness and even life itself. Uh, so much so that, that God says in Ezekiel 39, I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel. This is new. This is exciting. So the cries taken up then by Joel in Joel chapter 2. This, this outpouring will produce prophecy. It will impact young and old, male and female. Uh, Luke quotes from that in the book of Acts, of course, or Peter quotes from it. Again, it's a long way from what's experienced until then. Tiny drops of the Spirit's blessing on men only. There's, there's no examples in the Old Testament of, of women experiencing the Spirit in, way, in this way. And yet Joel says that the Spirit's going to be poured out on male and female. This is new. Clearly, God is going to do something big, and those Old Testament believers could, could see into the future and imagine it, treasure it, dream it. But they couldn't experience it. Not yet. And before we rush into the Old Testament to find out what happens, 
we need to remember that there's a 400-year gap between Malachi and Matthew. It's only a page in our Bibles. But 400 years passed. Perhaps 16 generations. And what characterized those 400 years? Well, in the words of a Jewish tradition, this is not a Bible uh, quote that I'm about to give you. It's a, it's a Jewish tradition. It's outside the Bible. Um, but it gives a sense of how the Jews were feeling. Uh, and this is what the tradition says. With the death of the last prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. That's what many Jews believe. Now, that might be overstating it a little bit to say the Holy Spirit is departed altogether, but that's how they felt, many of them, in those 400 years of silence. But then, the Holy Spirit did return. And he did not come quietly. He bursts onto the scene in Luke's chapter 1 and 2. We miss it often. The Spirit overshadows Mary as she conceives a child. A miracle, Luke chapter 1. John the Baptist is filled with a, with, a, with a Spirit in his mother's womb. Mother is filled with the Spirit. His father is filled with the Spirit. And both Elizabeth and Zechariah prophesy as a result of this filling. The Holy Spirit then comes upon Simeon in the temple. We read it in chapter 2, verse 25. Uh, we didn't read into chapter to 3, but if we had done, we'd find that as John the Baptist began his ministry, he did so as, by speaking about the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit, testifying of the one on whom the Spirit descended, John chapter 1. You see that the Holy Spirit's activity in the early chapters of the Gospels is absolutely remarkable. For the first time in the Bible, we get a, a reference to someone being filled with the Holy Spirit. For the first time, we're told explicitly that the Holy Spirit came upon women. Now, incredible, more than maybe people could imagine. And yet, perhaps by our standards, looking back, it's only two women in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Only half a dozen people in all. They're all Jews. It's not quite the pouring out of the Spirit on all of God's people that Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel talked about. But God's not finished yet. The Spirit has, has not stopped his work. And that can be seen in the, in the life of Christ as Jesus began his ministry. How did he do it? Full of the Spirit, Luke chapter 4 and 10. The Spirit given without limit, John chapter 3. Uh, Jesus cites Isaiah's prophecy, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, that we mentioned before. He, he draws attention to that in Luke 4. He, he explains to, uh, to Nicodemus uh, that everyone must be born of the Spirit, born of the above, in other words. He, he tells us that the Spirit gives life, John chapter 6. He, he drives out demons by the Spirit of God, Matthew chapter 12. That's Jesus' experience. It's certainly those prophecies certainly seem to be coming true in him, don't they? But of Jesus' disciples, it's not quite the same for them. And under the guidance and presence of Christ, the disciples grow into a band of useful, confident servants of Jesus. 
But there were many times when that left them. When Christ was asleep, they thought they drowned. When Christ was, was absent, they began to fear ghosts in Matthew 14. When Jesus was away in the garden, they lacked the strength to pray by themselves and slept. And when Jesus had been arrested, Peter even denied Jesus when he was on his own. You see, without Christ, they couldn't understand the simplest parable, Matthew 15. Without Christ, they couldn't believe in his resurrection, Luke 24, John 20. They didn't know that Christ was present with them. They, they didn't believe. In other words, scriptures show us that rather than being dependent on the Spirit of God, these disciples were dependent on Jesus himself being with them. They could not imagine life without him. And when they were apart from him, things quickly fell to pieces. Think of Thomas. He, he missed meeting with Jesus. And he couldn't believe. Those who met Jesus did believe. They needed Jesus' presence. So how surprising is it that we read in John chapter 16 and verse 6 that Jesus says this to the disciples, it's for your good that I'm going away. So here's this group of men. They've spent three years living with Jesus. And being with him is the best thing that's ever happened to them. He, in his presence, has transformed their lives. And yet Jesus says, it's for your good that I'm going away. And he tells them why. Because unless I go, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. I have to go, Jesus says. Because you don't need me. You need him, the Spirit of God. Now, does it suggest that the Bible's teaching that the Holy Spirit is more important than Jesus himself? Well, of course not. Because the scripture's making it clear to us that it's only when the Spirit is present that Jesus is present. That's why Jesus can say both, I am going away, and at the very same time say, I will be with you always. It's why he can promise his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And it's why Paul and Peter and others talk about the spirit of Jesus Christ. And the presence of the Holy Spirit is better than the physical presence of Jesus. Because it's only by the spirit that Jesus can promise, I am with you always. Imagine that the spirit had not come but Jesus was still present here on earth. Imagine Jesus was here tonight. It would thrill us. And yet it wouldn't be good. Because if Jesus was physically present tonight, then he's not physically present at Lighthouse, or Mount Elim, or Libanus, or in your home, or with the folk you are watching online. He's only with us. But because Jesus ascended and went to heaven and the Father sent the Spirit, 
in his place, then Jesus is present here and in Lighthouse and in Mount Elim and in our homes and in Libanus and everywhere else in the world. We are experiencing, therefore, the fulfillment of these promises, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We are the recipients of that. We long for Christ's personal return. We long for his appearing. But while we wait, we have the Spirit's presence with us today and in the Spirit, the presence of Christ with us today. How can I be so sure about that? Well, because Peter took the clearest and boldest Old Testament promise and declared that it would be fulfilled at Pentecost. It was fulfilled at Pentecost. And in that moment at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon more people in that moment than possibly had ever experienced him in that way in the whole of human history. Men and women, young and old, came to Jesus through the Spirit just as Joel predicted. And that's a pattern, of course, that's repeated throughout Acts and into the present day. Every time we see a man or a woman, a boy or a girl converted, we are seeing the Spirit being poured out. And when the Spirit comes, he, he doesn't go. Not, not in that sense. He, he comes at conversion. He dwells in the heart of every believer. Yes, we can, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can lose our sense of the Spirit's presence. But yet, He remains in us. You see, in the Old Testament, the vast majority of references to the Spirit were in the past tense, what the Spirit once did. Or they're in the future tense, what the Spirit will do. But there's not a single promise of the future work of the Spirit anywhere in the New Testament. Almost all the verbs in the New Testament relating to the Spirit are present continuous verbs. In other words, what the Spirit is doing. What the Spirit will continue to do. There's no promises for the Spirit in the future in the New Testament. Why? Because we're already receiving what was promised. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there's nothing to strive for, that we shouldn't long for and strive for a greater sense of Jesus' presence with us through the Spirit. But it means surely that because Christ has won our salvation, because the Spirit has been given, we cannot fail to be confident in our God. We cannot fail to be energetic in our evangelism. And we can pray that the Spirit would continue to be being poured out. Fill us that we might declare Christ boldly, that we might see the Spirit being poured out on yet more people. When we read Luke chapter 1 and 2, as we do almost every Christmas, we're to thank God that the Messiah has come. But we're to thank God too that the Spirit has come. Because if the Spirit had not come, we could not know the Messiah who lived and died in our place. What a glorious privilege then to be a New Testament believer and see God pouring out his spirit.